Hi, I am Tingan, and this is the Parents in Tech Podcast. Welcome to Season 1, where we interview mums who are technology company leaders based in Southeast Asia. We want to hear stories, hopes, challenges, and tips from mums who are raising kids while pursuing their career aspirations. In this episode, we speak to Michelle, Chief Strategy Officer of Seek Asia. Seek is a $12 billion tech company headquartered in Australia with presence in 18 countries. It is most well-known in Southeast Asia for two leading brands, JobStreet and JobsDB, the number one job search engines in Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Thailand. Prior to Seek, Michelle spent 14 years at McKinsey & Company, most of which with the tech, media, and telecoms practice. Michelle lives a very full life. She and her husband, Stefan, lead a dual career lifestyle whilst raising their two children, Chloe, age 10, and Arnold, age 7, and still find the time for sports, reading, and investments. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the Parents in Tech show. Thanks for joining us. And to start off with, could you tell us a bit more about your family? Thank you for having me today. I'm Michelle. I just turned 40 and uh, I'm married to Stefan, who is uh, like me from Belgium. And we have two children born in Malaysia. My daughter just turned 10 a few days ago and my son is seven. So they are both in school, thankfully back to physical schooling. And we're enjoying life in Malaysia. Awesome, Michelle. Thanks for sharing that. Now, what brought you and your family to Malaysia? Oh, Malaysia is a very long story for me. I came to Malaysia almost 30 years ago when I was 10. My dad was here for his work. He used to work at the Belgian embassy. Then I grew up here for seven years. My parents stayed on. I went back to study, came back every summer on holidays to be with my family And then when I had an opportunity with my first job, I signed on immediately because they said I could get to go back to Southeast Asia. So I came back 17 years ago together with my husband that I met during my studies in Belgium. And then the kids were just born here. They had no choice. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. So tell me a bit more, right? What drew you back to Malaysia? Because especially after your studies, I'm sure you had plenty of options. The world's your oyster. What led you back here? During my studies, I actually went to Latin America, Chile, Santiago de Chile, to be precise, because I was super passionate about Latin American continent, Spanish, you know, the music, everything about it. But what I realized was what a macho society Latin America was. And I realized that actually as a woman, I felt a lot more comfortable in Asia. And I felt like Asia was a very vibrant economy, You can do so much. Everything is growing so fast. It's very safe, like unlike some places in in Latin America. It's got incredible diversity. The food is amazing. People are amazing. And it was kind of home, right? My parents were still here back then. They then moved on and then they came back. But Malaysia is where I grew up and I love Southeast Asia and I wanted to come back at any cost. So do you love the weather? Oh, yes. (laughs) You do? (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. Of course, as a European, I love the weather. I do like the heat. I don't go and stand in the sun at, you know, (laughs) noontime. But I love the fact that, you know, we are in December and I can still go on my daily walk every morning. I have become a bit more Malaysian on that side. But yes, I still love the weather every single day. I wish I could relate to that, but uh, I definitely do miss the cold weather because I feel like I I guess I'm a little different where I love taking walks in the cold. (laughs) But yeah, I think growing up there, you probably got your fair share of that. Now, Michelle, how do you explain your job? 
to your children? That used to be extremely hard because I used to work at McKinsey and Company for 14 years, and that was very difficult. And the few times that I brought my children to our office parties, like Halloween party, and like, you know, like the Christmas party where we had clowns, they were like, mom, this is your job. Like you have candies all over and chocolate all over. And this is your job. Another time I brought them in and we were all building Legos and the office had bought these massive Lego sets. And they were like, so you basically come to the office and build Lego sets, right? Today, I work at Seek, which is the company that owns JobStreets, JobsDB, Jora, Jora Local, and Seek. And we're across Southeast Asia. That is much easier because I basically tell them we are a website like Google where you can go and look for a job and we help people find jobs. And what's interesting is that our nanny's daughter found her job on JobStreet. So it's much easier now for me to tell my child, like, see, that's where... Our nanny's daughter, who is an engineer in the Philippines, that's where she found her job. That's what I do. I help people find jobs and I help companies find talent. That's much easier. That's awesome. It's so simple, but yet so important and can be quite a challenge, right? Like, I mean, literally, that's why Seek became such a successful company. But maybe let's take a step back and let's talk about the time when you first welcomed your kids, Chloe and Arnold, into the world, right? That was when you were at McKinsey, your career was on the rise. How did you feel? How did you handle that? Was that a period that was stressful? What do you remember about that period eight, ten years back? So I always knew I wanted to be a mom. And I always knew that I wanted to be a very present mom. So coming out of university, a lot of friends went and, you know, just kind of joined some big companies at the bottom of the ladder and kind of like, you know, would go one by one. And I actually said, I can't do that. I need something where I kind of fast forward pretty quickly because I want to achieve something important in my career before the age of 30, or at least before I have kids. Because I said, it's going to be much easier for me to go back to work after having kids, including if I decide to take a break or something. If I've achieved a lot, I'll always be welcome back in the workforce. But if I'm just kind of like an ordinary profile before I have kids, then it's going to be more difficult. I don't know why, but I had that belief in my head that as a woman, I didn't have the time to take my time like other men had. And I wanted to kind of trailblaze. So I guess some of the men were like, oh, my God, she's so, you know, career minded and blah, blah, blah. Thankfully, my husband didn't think that. So when I was pregnant, it was a big question. And McKinsey was a great company for that. It really encouraged you to have a lot of conversations. So they connected me with lots of other women that had children and were consultants, partners, senior partners in the firm, how they do it. McKinsey even has a book about, you know, McKinsey moms. So you have like all these tips and tricks and it covers everything from how do you breastfeed while traveling and send your milk back to your baby? How do you plan your what we call ramp up, ramp down? So going in and out of maternity, etc. But the one thing that McKinsey also had was that, you know, when you are client facing as a consultant, you are expected to be at your clients four or five days a week. And uh, when I had my daughter, I was uh, 30. And I decided that I didn't want to be traveling four or five days a week. And I wanted to wake up with my children most days and I wanted to be putting them to bed on most days. So I was actually 
going to look for another job. And a senior partner from the firm called me and said, hey, I'm taking over the tech, media and telecoms practice at McKinsey, and I need a, an engagement manager who can help me turn it around and grow the practice and all of that and kind of like transform it. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great thing. It's exactly what I do for clients, except I do it for ourselves internally. I get to work with amazing people that I love working with. And my boss at that time said, we'll just kind of establish what needs to be done. And then you work when you want, where you want, how you want. I don't care. As long as you deliver, as long as we are in agreement, the rest is all your choices. And this was 10 years ago, right? So I started my hybrid model that everyone has been struggling with. I started 10 years ago and the office had asked me like, you know, we need you to have a room. We need you to have a proper office with a printer, a shredder, an internet connection, so I had all of that set up for myself and I was working from home. I had very flexible hours. I could continue to breastfeed at the time, at least for the first uh, few months, etc. And that was amazing because the firm was extremely flexible. Obviously, I was flexible with the firm as well, right? So I was working late hours sometimes, you know, sometimes taking very late calls. But then I could also take some time back during the day and arrange it to my child's schedule as well. So that's how I thought about it 10 years ago. Wow, that is so incredible to know that you had such a supportive environment, infrastructure, superiors that really make this happen. But I think you mentioned something that was very interesting, which was the intentionality that when you graduated, you kind of want to go all out and reach some level of success and achievement before you became a mom. So when you first became a mom, did you feel like you have reached the point? What were your thoughts then? When I was 21, I joined this company where I was selling egg powders for the food industry, but also for the beverage industry, all these protein shakes and all of that for your muscles, right? I was selling phospholipids for the pharmaceutical industry and uh, lysozyme, which is an egg protein, right? When I was 22, I set up the first regional office for that company here in Kuala Lumpur. I was taking care of Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So that wasn't too bad, right, for a 22-year-old to be given such an opportunity, which is why I find that smaller companies sometimes give you larger opportunities, but then you can't expect people to be telling you what to do. You've got to be self-starter and driver and go out and all of that, right? So I did that for a couple of years. You know, I grew the turnover by 50%. I recruited agents, distributors. I trained people, went a lot to visit clients, etc. So that was great. And then I joined McKinsey when I was, I think, 25. And with McKinsey, I traveled a lot in, you know, Southeast Asia. I worked a lot in Jakarta, Philippines, Malaysia, and a bit of uh, Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. And again, as a consultant in McKinsey, you get so much exposure and all that. So Yes, I had, I think, achieved quite a bit by the time I had reached 30. Obviously, you can always achieve more, right? And actually, there was a moment where I was kind of waiting for a promotion before I would start family. And my promotion did get delayed. And at that time, I went like, you know what? Just forget about it. I'm just going to go ahead and put my family first. Because people kept on saying, wait until you're first promoted before you have kids. People that meant well, right? But at some point, you can't always wait for your career to happen before you have your 
family happen, right? So I went ahead and, and we were pretty lucky because we were pretty quick to have our first child and the promotion happened and all of that, right? But it's true that we can't always wait for our career to reach a certain stage because there will always be the next stage. I completely echo with that. There's always something else, right? Like you mentioned, there's always another achievement to get, another promotion, another company to be part of. At the end of the day, family can't wait. For mums, there's also a biological clock, right? Unfortunate, but that's what we got to do. So I'm really glad to hear that you know, that was your story of how you transitioned and you overcame that and decided to go ahead. And hey, everything worked out well. But maybe let's dial back to your first job because I think to be essentially a market launcher, to set something up, to have all the responsibility, it's something that I'm sure many of the people who are listening to our podcast, whether they're dads, their moms, or they're not even parents, would love to get the chance. How did the opportunity come out for you? It was just a small company that I knew through friends and family, etc. And I knew that they were doing most of their work on the export market. And because I wanted to go back and work internationally, so I applied. You know, it's the kind of company, they were very small. You didn't have like super interesting CVs coming in saying, I want to work for you. And suddenly they're like, who is this person who wants to work for us? I think they were initially surprised, but they also gave me a lot of leeway to shape it, right? Because I could shape my journey, I could set priorities, I was reporting to the CEO for two years, and then as we grew, I, I reported to the CEO minus one. So it gave me a lot of leeway. That's why I do sometimes say, you know, it's not bad at all to start with smaller companies where you get to experiment and do everything. Because I used to do everything from accounting to strategy to sales to training to secretary to working with the tax agents and working with the accountants. So it was a good experience, but it was with a company that was profitable, a company that had running revenues. So it wasn't fully from scratch either, right? But it just gives you a lot of opportunities. Truly, it's pretty much like the value of starting your own thing, right? And I think one thing that stands out, Michelle, as I'm speaking to you on this is clearly you are self-starter, right? And I think that's something that really helped you to get where you are, not waiting to be told what to do, but really thinking and taking ownership of the business. So I think that's something that would be good advice for all the parents listening to this. So let's fast forward a little to the time when, of course, you welcome both the, uh, your children into the world, right? Tell us, what was it like to raise your kids in Malaysian, in Asian culture? Of course, the culture is not foreign to you, but were there any surprises? No, I think for me, raising my kids in Asia and in Malaysia specifically is really a gift. First of all, because Malaysia and Southeast Asia is a geography where you have a lot of opportunities in terms of creating a system that works at home. So we do have a nanny. We would not be able to have, you know, a nanny working with us in some of the other geographies like in Europe or in Australia or, and all of that. Right. So that is tremendous. And in a way, I don't think I would be able to do the jobs that I do and the responsibilities that I have to take. If I didn't know that I have someone at home who is basically running the house, right? And making sure that everything runs, that I don't have to worry about, you know, dinner and, you know, did somebody show up at the bus when, you know, the kids came back at three o'clock and stuff like that, right? So most surprising thing, I'm not sure. I think the most surprising is maybe the variety of schools, of philosophies of parenting you find around you, because in a way... If you are in your own country, and maybe this is how Malaysians feel, right? But if you are in your own country, 
everyone around you tells you this is how you have to raise your kids and this is the culture and this is what you do and this is what you don't do. But being here and seeing, you know, how the Chinese maybe do it, like the whole confinement, seeing how the Malay confinement works, seeing how, you know, the Australians do it and these guys do it and those guys do it and the French do it. I kind of had a melting pot, right? So for example, like I did hypnobirth, I did water birth, but then I had a doula who is a Canadian doula. I had a wonderful Malay lady coming and and doing the post delivery, uh, just a massage part, not the food part and all. It was nice because I had all this melting pot of what I thought was, you know, the best of all the cultures that fit for me and for for my child. And that was kind of cool. It is. It's like a buffet, right? Like you have executives and you know what's there. People, you have different people to ask and go through the experience. And then it's almost pick and choose what you like. Now, Michelle, you mentioned about hypnobirth and water birth. Wow. So maybe let's start off first with introducing what these two are and what led you to decide to go through these two methods. Hypnobirth is basically a relaxation method to help you through birth and labor and to help you go through it in an unmedicated way. So no medication, no uh, epidural, no gas, none of that, right? And then water birth is giving birth in water, which obviously automatically implies no epidural and none of that as well. So the two often go together. How I went in there was a bit funny because I was a consultant, I was working my head off and I didn't have time for these things, right? But I knew that you have to take these classes for preparation to giving birth, right? So I figured, okay, what do I do? And my best friend is a very renowned French naturopath in Singapore. And I was like, I need to sign up for these things. And she already had one child. And she said, oh, go for hypnobirth. It's really cool. And I was like, okay. At that time, I didn't know what it was. So I started Googling and, and she said, and take a doula for your birth. I was like, okay, she's my best friend, right? So I fully trust her. So I started Googling, you know, hypnobirth, doula, Kuala Lumpur. And I fall on this lady and I see that she's starting a hypnobirthing class, which is like a pretty long thing. It was like an eight or 12 week stuff, right? Eight weeks. And I go like, hey, I want to sign up. How much is this? And I was like, oh, that's a little bit much. But okay, I want to sign up. When do we start? And she said, we start Saturday. So we just show up with my husband a little bit late. So we even missed the, the little intro at the beginning. And my husband, I was like, I was, I just pulled him. I said, you need to come. This is like the birthing classes and we need to do this for eight weeks. So we get in there and then she starts explaining what hypnobirth is. And I'm like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> what? Like no medication, no epidural, just relax and breathe the baby out. I was like, are you kidding me? And then at the end of the session, she showed us some videos of women giving birth using hypnobirth and I felt so betrayed because I was 30 and I had no idea that you could give birth without being in pain without crying and shouting and yelling and none of it looked like what you are seeing in you know the hospital scenes on the tv and and the movies and none of all the horror stories that everybody tells you about and i came out of there and i was really angry with like the world that somebody had not told me about this thing so then we did this whole uh, hypnobirth course and then i had my first hypnobirth with chloe which went very well it, it did take a while but it went well in the end and then my second birth with Arnaud was amazing and that was a water birth 
So that was like unbelievable. I always say I would have 10 more of those if I didn't have to be pregnant 10 times and if I didn't have to pay for the education 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is incredible. So within the first session of the hypnobirth course, it changed your mind completely. Yes. It's true. Even when I think about the whole delivery process, I remember it was just slightly more than a year ago. It was painful for my wife and she was under epidural, right? So this is incredible. But I guess it takes practice, right? So tell me what happened over the eight weeks, because I'm sure it's not the kind of thing that I can say, Michelle, you got to relax and then you just relax. The eight weeks is actually about undoing a lot of what has been put into your brain over the last 30 years, right? And I was lucky because my mom also delivered the three of us without any medication. And she was always for natural birth and all of that. So let me just put it this way. We are the only mammals in this entire planet who have to have a hospital be going through the fear of giving birth and all the shouting and all these doctors around you and like pulling the baby out and everybody shouting. A lot of the eight weeks is about making you kind of realize that a lot of this is constructed and you've got to start deconstructing all these frames of minds and like peeling them away and actually realizing. And so every single class has a lot of videos you know, there's like a movie called Orgasmic Birth, and it's all about water birth and hypnobirth. It's a universe, right? Basically, all my reading became hypnobirth, natural birth, gentle birth, all of these things. And I thought it was fascinating. So I went into that. And it does take a lot of determination, right? Because again, we've been built to fear birth. But if you think about it, birth is nothing more natural than having your period or having sex. Obviously, if you're having sex in a very tense way, or if you're having a lot of stress for your period, it's going to be very painful, right? It's called a rape. But if you are relaxed, if you're kind of like enjoying the moment and breathing and relaxing, then you just open up and that baby just comes out. And it's just incredible. So I recommend it to everyone. Some of the people who are hearing this would miss this up. I'd see the huge smile you have on your face as you recount this experience. I'm like, yep, okay, that's a mental note. If I do plan to have a second child, would certainly ask my wife to consider that. But I think, Michelle, you hit on something that was so true, right? Like so many times we are almost like prisoners of the stereotypes, the beliefs that, that are placed on us rightly or wrongly. I would love to hear, right? What's kind of like one of these stereotypes or status quos, especially about mums, that you reject? Well, one of it is probably that the mom can't do a professional career and have kids at the same time, that she necessarily have to either be a good mom or a good professional. So that I reject, right? That I think you can have both. What I think you can't is try to be the perfect housewife and the perfect professional. So in my case, the whole house part has been outsourced to our nanny. She is amazing. She's the reason why I can work. That's what I told my CEO last week, right? Because she's going to basically take care of like the household things like, you know, cleaning, ironing, washing, cooking, and these kind of things like deliveries, groceries, etc. right? That comes with a huge amount of trust, obviously, right? But if she can do all of that, then I can focus on my job at work and my investments, because I also do a lot of our family investments. And of course, I'm doing a lot of my children duties and all of that, right? It's like, 
I woke up every night for my children. My nannies never did. I take care of my children when it comes to stuff like school, etc. Now, of course, I don't mind a, a hand for like breakfast duty, etc. Right? But like, I gave most of their evening baths, etc. When we had homeschooling, I always had a homeschooling duty. I didn't have, you know, people coming in. So my choice has been very clear that I will outsource the housing part and my helper will also care for my children on the hours that I'm at work. But if I'm not at work, then I'm with them, right? And on weekends, we have no helper. It's just us. And because I'm not working, then we split duties with my husband, right? So we will cook together, we'll clean together, we'll do dishes. But, you know, I think you can absolutely be a successful working woman and a mother, but you can't do everything. And that's where this idea of outsourcing maybe what you care a bit less about or splitting tasks with your husband, right? Yeah, I think that's so true, right? It's almost like what is good enough. But I think beyond just also delegating a task, Michelle, I'm sure there were moments where there was something at work. How do you not carry it to the time that you spend with your family, right? Because especially whether in your current role as the chief strategy officer or whether back in consulting, right? There's always things, there's always problems, there's always fires to put out. And that can be so consuming at times, right? So how do you create and I would say almost set those boundaries? So at McKinsey, I had pretty clear boundaries when it came. So my EA knew that I would take calls as early as 7 or 7.30 in the morning up to about 6 o'clock. And then from 6 to 9, I didn't take calls. And then 9 p.m. onwards, I'd go back online. If I had fires and stuff, then I would say, listen, I'll be back online and I'll take care of it when I'm back online. That did mean I was you know, often working until past midnight. But at least my six to nine was protected, right? And there were also moments like, you know, if I had to like take my daughter somewhere, etc., then I would just arrange to do it. And, you know, I would either take maybe calls on my way there or back. I try not to have calls when my children are in the car because then I can be with them. And then I think it's fine to tell your kids, hey, I've got a big problem at work that's kind of on my mind, right? It's no use kind of hiding it from them. And you can say, well, I'm going to do this with you now, etc. I'm going to be with you. But yeah, I have this thing on my mind, right? Everybody has stuff on their mind, regardless of whether it's work or not. Seek is a very, very lifestyle-friendly tech company, one of the few. And we are extremely good about boundaries, you know, for families, for hobbies, for just having a personal life. So in my three months, I haven't ever had to do a lot of those rapid firefighting, etc. Because we tend to be pretty well organized and I haven't had to do that yet. So Michelle, tell us, how do you find the time for reading, tracking, yoga, and so many other things in your life? So... There's a couple of things, right? One is I used to do a lot of sports and I used to have a lot of hobbies as a teenager and as a student, right? So when I started working a lot, that part really took a hit. And I had moments where I would like be fit and then moments where I would not be fit. And I had moments where I was fit. But my husband is extremely fit, right? I mean, he's now a holistic health coach. And I was thinking like, this guy is literally addicted to running and to his sports. Because if he doesn't do it, you know, he becomes in a bad mood and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know what? If you can get addicted to negative stuff, right? Like coffee or alcohol or cigarettes or drugs, there must be a way that you can also get addicted to the positive stuff, right? So there was a year where I basically said that I would do something, I would move in some way every single day, no matter what, 
30 to 60 minutes a day. And the best time to do that for me is, you know, as soon as I wake up, I just put on sports clothes and I don't get out of them until it's done. So eventually I have to obviously get out. So I usually try to either walk or jog or do something or do my yoga in the morning for about an hour. And then I start work. Reading is usually in the evenings. I try to turn my phone to a plane mode as soon as I can in the evenings and then just leave it in and read myself off to bed. And there is one thing that I also found very helpful is that whenever you say, I don't have time for this or that. Try to change that for, it is not a priority for me to do that or that, right? So like, I don't have time to like run or do sports. Just say like, it is not priority for me to be healthy and fit and, you know, well in my mind. And then you're like, oh wait, no, it is a priority. Then you make that priority. Because at the end of the day, an hour of your day is 4% of that day. So we spend so much time at work. You know, we must find time. At McKinsey, because it was quite tough for me to find the timing, I started these walking, talking calls. Because one time my senior partner in Stockholm was like, hey, I don't have time for workout today. So do you mind if I walk during this call? And I thought, if a senior partner in McKinsey can do this, I can do this. So I set up and every morning, my 7.30 to 8.30 was open for calls and meetings, except that people were notified I would be walking during that time. And sometimes I'd be walking two hours. I'd do my calls with like California, Texas, New York, and Australia all in the morning. That was like two hours. You know, I was walking like 12K around my neighborhood and getting a lot of work done and coming back and and feeling fresh and energized. Because again, sports gives you these endorphins and these feel-good feelings that you need to, to kick off your day. So that's how I managed to fit all of that into my day. And I hope that maybe some of the tips can help some of the listeners. That's wonderful, right? I think it's almost like, once again, setting aside the time and creating the discipline. I like the part where you say you would wear sports clothes and it's almost like you just got to get around to doing it. And I think the hardest part is always about building the habit, right? Once you get past the initial hurdle, I'm sure now if you stop moving, you feel a lot more uncomfortable than the other way around. Yes, I'm officially addicted. Yeah, addicted. <laughs> Yeah, and and also the walks, right? It's like at the same time when you walk on calls, like the calls don't feel that long, which may or may not be a good thing. So it just sounds like a great balance. And considering how much time, especially since COVID, we planted our butts on our chairs. I think that's good advice that we can all follow. Yeah, or like I take that time to listen to podcasts or I take that time to meet with a lot of people, right? Because I don't have time to do like these lunches with the ladies and, you know, coffee mornings and dinners and all of that because these are all kind of like, you know, either I'm working or I'm with the kids, etc. So like uh, on Wednesday morning, I'm walking with like the CEO of La Juiceria and uh, another friend of mine who is uh, building a, an e-commerce platform. So I also try to actually make use of these precious time to meet people, to kind of exchange, just to kind of catch up socially with my friends. Some days I walk with my parents who also live in Kale. Then that kind of gives me time with my parents. So there's ways of making very good use of the time. So Michelle, I'm curious, right, in terms of the way that, you know, you communicate and you are thinking about bringing up both Arnold and Chloe, how are you thinking about that, right? Because you are in a place where, yes, it's a hotpot of cultures. There's so many buffet options to choose from. Uh, what were some of the things that you pick and chose? I think it's important for my children to grow up with this example that a woman can work 
and a woman can hold quite important responsibilities, etc. Right? That was something important, and I was already working partly out of financial necessity. But a friend of mine who was not working because her husband was on an expat package with, you know, very good conditions, she wasn't working. And at some point, because her kids were a bit grown up and they were starting to go to school and she was getting a bit bored and she thought, oh, maybe I can find myself a job. And she had two daughters. And so she told her daughters, hey, how would you feel about mama going back to work? And the daughters, they laughed it off. They were like, but moms don't work, only dads work. So I've always had to work partly out of financial necessity, but I actually find it extremely important and maybe even more so as an expat that I work, that I set this example, right? And I do get it from my daughter. Sometimes she goes like, why are you like one of the only ones that I know that works? Or like all my friends, none of their moms work. And I have to explain to them that they do also work, except that, you know, they're more of like charities and pro bono things, but they all work. Because I think that's an important role model that you set both for the girls and the boys, right? And so my boy also sees his own dad, you know, taking fatherly duties, reading books to bed, helping with the bath, you know, being there for for these moments as well. It's not just, you know, only the mother or only the father that does either one. We have a dual career family and we have a dual parenting family as well. That's beautiful. It's really a truest meaning of the word, a partnership, right? With you and your husband splitting both, not just the career and the financial aspects of it, but even also raising kids. So tell me, Michelle, how did you and your husband think about parenting duties, responsibilities, and not just in terms of tasks, but even I would say like the principles and things that you want to teach the children? I do most of the parenting reading in the couple. And I guess I talk to him about things and he, I guess, agrees. Sometimes he disagrees. We also did one course together, which is called the Positive Parenting. There was this lady running workshops here. So we went for, you know, five or six weeks of workshops or even more. Maybe it was also another eight or 10 workshops, right? But it's interesting because sometimes as a couple, you have conflicts because of how the children are behaving or raising, right? So if your child doesn't finish his plate, what do you do? I was raised to finish my plate. So was he. On this very particular example, I don't force my kids to finish their plates. I will ask them to serve smaller servings and start with small and then, you know, help themselves again. I won't force them to eat something that they really dislike because I think that takes away a lot of the joy from eating. For example, I might ask them, hey, what do you want for veggies tonight? You have three choices. But before we prepare it, once it's prepared, you've got to eat it because you've asked for it, right? We do make them participate in some choices. Obviously, it's not open, right? It's not like, oh, what do you want? Oh, if I don't have it in the fridge, I'll rush out to the supermarket. No, it's within what we have. What would you prefer? Like we have principles, right? Like you have to have your proteins, you have to have your veggies, and you have to have a bit of carbs, right? And then if they don't fully finish because they're satisfied, I'll be okay with it. I had to work my husband a little bit on it, but he's okay. So you just got to talk it out, right? You've just got to agree on where you agree, where you disagree. We have a lot of things we agree on. Like, you know, we try not to medicate too much. So, you know, we try to go the natural way as much as possible. Obviously, you know, if you have an appendicitis, you check into the hospital, you get your surgery done, right? If you have a little bit of fever, 
pre-COVID, of course. You know, you're not going to like completely rush to the hospital just because of that, right? So talk it out, you know, read a couple of maybe books, agree on a couple of principles, and then kind of, I think it still goes on case by case. Yeah. And I like the part where you mentioned about joint activities together, whether it's about reading books or even attending courses together. I think that creates that space to have these conversations. Because sometimes, I, at least for myself also, I find that it's almost you can get caught up with the daily like, operations or day-to-day running that uh, you miss out on those deeper conversations. So I completely agree with you, right? Taking the time to set aside. Yeah, that course actually was also very interesting because they have this concept of family council. When we were doing the course, we were very uh, particular about holding our family council meeting every week where we would discuss issues, right, as a family. And it was very interesting because, for example, we would say, well, we have an issue with the fact that we have been late for the bus five days this week, right? And then we kind of put it on the table and then we have to problem solve as a family. And, you know, you've got like five-year-old kids who are, I mean, my son was five-year-old, my daughter was eight, you know, they're contributing, right, to ideas. They're like, well, maybe we should choose our clothes the night before. It's like, okay, we take note, we're going to do that. And maybe we should put the alarm clock a bit earlier, because then they come up with the solutions, right? Now, it sounds great when I talk about it like that. In practice, it's still, you know, a bit of hell every now and then. So we are less particular about the weekly family council, but we still do it every once in a while. When we have like something that we need to discuss, and sometimes it's funny because it's my son who is now seven, he will go like, we need a family council to discuss this. <laughs> so then we say, okay, what's the issue we need to solve? And then everybody kind of comes together and we agree on boundaries. So it could be, you know, iPad timing. Because like we used to have a rule that no iPad before afternoon on weekends. And so, you know, at some point he disagreed with that. So we discussed it and we agreed within certain conditions to review it, et cetera, et cetera. So we problem solve together. That's wonderful. I think it's not the frequency, but the fact that it's already so ingrained in your son that at seven, if there are issues, he knows that the way to solve it is to talk it out. And I think that practice is healthy. Sometimes it's hard, especially for kids to feel like they have a voice to speak out. But you know, what you're doing to lend them and equip them with that ability to communicate openly, I think that's just something that I'm taking note also. Yeah, you might find it nice, but there's also a lot of people who would criticize that, right? So there, I also get a lot of people who say, no, 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 you are the adult in the house, you choose and you decide everything and your child is a child and has to just do what he or she is being told, right? And when you raise a child's critical thinking, you also got to face it, right? So you're going to get some hard truth in your face as well, where they're going to come and say, well, what about this? And why don't you do that, etc, etc. So for example, we are trying to be as strict as possible around screen time. Of course, they have some screen time, but it's limited, etc. But then he will come to me, he says, I think we've got to talk about your screen time, because you're spending way too much time on that phone. And you've already spent your day on your computer, mom. So We've got to discuss this because it's not working. So then, of course, you have to have a little bit of a mirror in front of you and and face what you have built as a little 
monster. But I always find it ironic that we want to build the leaders of tomorrow and the critical thinkers of tomorrow. But please do not have an opinion until you're 18 and, and all of that. So I don't think that works. I think critical thinkers and leaders are raised from when they're small. And of course, it doesn't mean disrespecting your parents and all of that. But you are entitled to have an opinion and to argue for it, etc. So we have long arguments sometimes. Well, it's all part of the growing process. But I think, Michelle, you touched on such a real point, right? Which is sometimes the view that I think a lot of parents have, but I also disagree. It's almost like the parent is always right. And I think it's important, right, to let our children know that we are all human. We are sometimes imperfect. And hey, dad and mom also do make mistakes, right? And just as how when they make mistakes, we expect them to own it, to to kind of correct it and apologize. I think it should be the same for us. Uh, But I know that there is, of course, a camp of parents who believe that, no, you should never apologize to your children, right? Like it's the authority that you have. So that's always something, uh, almost like an interesting balance to think of. So Michelle, I'd love to hear, right, in terms of disciplining your children and building that in them, what are some ways that you have experimented with? What worked? What didn't work? Yeah, so what definitely didn't work, and again, I don't criticize any parenting method because you've really got to find what works with you and for you and for your family and your child. I've always been much more on the gentle parenting, positive parenting side. So I think I tried maybe for three minutes to let my child cry to sleep. I didn't manage that. I have absolutely no disrespect for parents who managed to do that method. And I hear great things about it. My brother did it. He swears by it. It's just not me. I just can't do that, right? So I think, as you were saying, it's like a buffet or you could call it a supermarket. You've got to find what fits you and what fits your family. So for me, it's really been these principles of, you know, I read a lot about gentle birthing, gentle parenting. It wasn't gentle sleep, but it was something like it as well. We didn't co-sleep in the same bed, but my child was always like in our bedroom for the first year because I was still breastfeeding. You know, I would breastfeed on demand until a certain age. Then we had a bit of a schedule, but I'm not 100% laissez-faire. You know, it's not like, oh, you eat whenever you want, whatever you want, you sleep whenever you want. But at the beginning, you kind of have to go with the flow, set a cadence, And then after a while, like when my daughter, it was just, you know, food or milk would be 8, 12, 4, 8, midnight, and the next day, 8, right? So, you know, it kind of like came on its own, right? My second one was a bit more of a nightmare, very difficult to kind of have like regular hours and all of that. So we had to go with the flow and that every child is going to be different as well, right? My first one was like sleeping from... 11 to 6 a.m. every day since she was like three, four weeks old. You know, she was a great eater, great sleeper. She was an amazing baby. And I was thinking, what are all these people complaining about? You know, it's just about connecting with your child. And then I had my second child and he would only sleep during the day and he'd wake up every single hour and stay awake for a while at night. And that's when I understood why some moms throw their kids out of the window, right? Because they literally go crazy. I had a very easy baby and a tougher baby. The good news is that in the end, they all become good people (laughs) and they don't stay terrible their entire life. But some babies can be much tougher than others. Just hang in there, find what works for you, take advice from different people, but don't apply things that I think are against your own instinct as a mom or as a dad and don't work for you, right? So 
everyone will have advice, just like in a supermarket, everybody wants to sell you stuff. But at the end, you have to choose what works for you and that you like. I love that. That's a beautiful way, right? It's truly, there's so much variety in front of us, but I think the right mindset, it's not a formal, I want to do everything. I want to get the best of everything, but to pick and select and choose wisely. So Michelle, if there's one thing you learned as a parent in tech, what would that be? The one lesson would be really have your system, right? Like any working parent in a bit unpredictable or high responsibility job, have your system, have your village, right? I think it's an African saying that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? So the problem is that, you know, our modern societies, we used to be in Asia, luckily for our Malaysians and some of the Chinese and, and Indians, you, you guys still live with your, you know, maybe uh, grandparents and all that. So you have a system and people can take care of your children at moments where you can't. And you have kind of the, this economy of scale. <laughs> but if you are going to live on your own, in a kind of modern society type of setup, right? Then you have to create that system that will work. And uh, it could be with a daycare, it could be with a nanny, it could be with your family, but you've got to find a way that when you are at work, you can focus on your work and you can feel like, okay, my kids are in a safe pair of hands and I don't need to worry about it. And then if I could add a second lesson is find an environment where your family as a priority is understood and shared and nurtured, right? So I've been extremely lucky because at McKinsey, we worked really, really hard. But, you know, if anything happened to my child, I always knew I could drop everything and I could run. At Seek, equally, we are extremely lifestyle friendly. We care about our people having a life, whether you're a parent or not, right? If you're not a parent, you might have animals, you might have a hobby, but it's important for us that you have an environment that cares about you. And that, I think, is probably another huge lesson. If you're in an environment where you are not cared for as a parent or as an individual in general, then at some point, this isn't going to work out, right? So find something that fits you and your family as well. And I remember at McKinsey, my family was part of me, right? So like often we had these parties where kids were invited. You know, when we had my farewell, my whole family was invited to the farewell. When I joined Seek, you know, when my daughter was hospitalized for appendicitis, they sent her a gift. You know, they care for you, not just for you, but your family. You are a whole person, right? So find an environment where that is respected. That is beautiful. And I think that's so important to find a place that can support you to grow professionally and in your personal life. Well, Michelle, it's been such a joy to speak with you. Now, if our listeners would like to connect with you or follow you, how can they best do so? I think LinkedIn would probably be the best, right? As a kind of business social network. Still come to Job Street and seek for your jobs. <laughs> but LinkedIn as a network is great. So yeah, it would be great to connect over there. Great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for the show. And we really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Parents in Tech podcast with me, your host, Tingen. We hope you were inspired on how to raise kids and build companies. To catch up on earlier episodes or stay updated with upcoming ones, head over to www.parents.fm to join our community of parents in tech. There, you can also drop me a question, idea, feedback or suggestion. Once again, the website is www.parents.fm 
That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.